Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. In terms of those protests, the more neutral we can be, how we respond to the protests, and then changing the topic fast is a great thing to do. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Okay, today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Katya Raul. And Katya is a graduate of the University of Michigan Medical School and has served as a family physician in urban, rural, and university student health settings. During her time in practice, she was struck by the prevalence of disordered eating and feeding and related health problems. She believes establishing a healthy feeding relationship, in essence, how kids are fed, is the missing piece in addressing disordered eating and weight dysregulation. Described as academic but warm and down to earth because she's a Midwesterner, just as Dr. Raul teaches the important. I'm just kidding. Of healthy feeding relationships to healthcare providers, family therapists, and childcare staff, and consults with corporate clients, nutrition education, and public health providers. She's appeared in many publications, including the Betty Crocker blog, Parents Magazine, Brainchild Magazine, and Mommy MD Guides, among others. Her writing has appeared in HuffPost Parenting Blogs, Adoptive Families Magazine, and beyond. And she actually has some incredible resources on foster and adoptive families. I don't know if we'll get to that today. Welcome, Katya. Thank you so much. I am so excited to talk about the conversation that dominates a lot of parents' minds, which is how do we feed our kids? How do we help them eat the things that we know that they're supposed to be eating more of? And then I love on your site, it says, be a mom, not a food cop. Research shows that the more we push our kids with eating, whether it's to eat more or less or more veggies, the worse kids eat. It doesn't have to be so hard. Let's talk about how this started. Oh, like with so many things, it started uh, as a parent. When I was in family medicine, I went to, you mentioned it, University of Michigan. I went to a good medical school, a good residency program, and we did not really get taught a lot of this stuff. And I just kind of thought I knew what I was doing. And 
Um, one in three parents, so a lot of your listeners will ask their child's primary care provider for help with feeding and growth worries. And I can kind of call myself and my colleagues out. We don't know what we're doing a lot of the time. And so I was giving out feeding advice and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was sort of just serve more fruits and vegetables and no child will starve themselves. And you serve the vegetables first and kind of all of the things that we think we know we're supposed to be doing. And then kind of brought to my knees in a very humbling way as a parent. And so, you know, right off the bat had just these horrible breastfeeding problems. And that was this just dark hole. And so I started with a pretty difficult feeding relationship with my daughter, and she was much larger than average you know, third generation, nine to 10 pound baby. And this was just when all of the obesity, you know, the childhood obesity panic was ramping up. And I was really anxious and how I was feeding her. And generally, if there's anxiety and worry, it's not helpful. And so I got into real feeding challenges with her. She was pretty food preoccupied. And I had to come to this as a parent. And I found Ellen Satter's book and it transformed my worry and my life within a couple of weeks of of doing this division of responsibility and this responsive trust-based feeding. And I was like, wow, this is really powerful stuff. So I had to learn more about it. And with that, learning all the, you know, looking at all the research about growth and pressure to eat in particular. And now with this sort of responsive feeding stuff, it's personally and professionally, it's just been this incredible journey. And so I'm kind of on a mission to help other parents address this, what I see is often really needless struggling and suffering and sometimes even making things worse, which is just horrible as a parent. Right. Well, you mentioned earlier that you said, I'm going to call my colleagues out that we don't know what we're doing. Actually, I don't think any of us know what we're doing, right? And so I think we we all feel better. I mean, that we don't know what we're doing initially. Yeah. Until you start to yes. learn things that we don't know what we're doing initially often, or we have right. that feeling often. And yes. I forgot to mention that the reason that I reached out to you for an interview is because I had your book on my shelf. And it was because mm. I was working with kids with eczema and I was getting parent questions about picky eating, right? And Katja's mm-hmm. book is called Helping Your Child with Extreme Picky Eating. She, it's co-written with a speech therapy. We can talk about that later. But you were just talking about being inspired by Ellen Satter. And a lot of people listening may know this, but Ellen Satter is sort of the queen bee, the original, the OG of childhood feeding. And you were in that the same area as her. So how did you end up working with Ellen Satter uh, later? So you started, that was pivotal for you to get into her teaching and then to apply it, which is always the challenging part. And then how did you introduce yourself to her to where you two started working together? Sure. Well, I had her book, Child of Mine, and then I just kind of emailed and I said, hey, you know, I still have one or two questions after reading this book. Can I book a consult with you? And so I actually came to her as a parent who wanted to just fine tune a couple of questions and challenges I was having. And then I went and, you know, I was within driving distance. So I went to trainings and then ended up being asked to join her clinical faculty group. And so I did that for a while and learned a lot and then have been out on my own for the last 10 years or so or more now. Gosh, time flies. So yeah, just finding and her books are just incredible resources. And really, it's so foundational to everything I do, her division of responsibility. And I think a lot of what I do with 
uh, you know, when I've been consulting with parents is that, you know, really digging into the worry, exploring what works and doesn't work for individual families. And so, yeah, that was sort of how that evolved. And then I, you know, linked up because for me, then the same thing, like with you, you're working with families and, and it wasn't just typical picky eating. I was seeing a lot of, I see kind of two big things. One is food preoccupation. So that tends to be kids in naturally bigger bodies where there's a lot of anxiety and we want them to eat less, right? It seems like, and I'm not advocating this, but our culture right now seems to think the only good body is a lean right around the 50th percentile. When in fact, kids come in all shapes and sizes. There was nothing wrong with my nine pound, 11 ounce baby. You know, there's nothing wrong with kids growing who are thriving and doing well at the fifth percentile. If that's where their bodies naturally want to be, there's nothing wrong with kids growing at the 95th percentile if that's where their bodies want to be. So I see, you know, these two groups of bigger kids where there's this sense that they're eating too much and we have to somehow get them to eat less. So we restrict them. We don't let them eat whatever, (laughs) you know, carbs is kind of the current devil. So we try to get them to eat less or push fruits and vegetables and it backfires. And the other group I see a lot is kids who tend to be in smaller than average bodies where there's worry that they're not big enough. So there's this pressure to get them to eat more, to eat more protein. So what we see is a lot of times these underlying anxieties, my kid's too big or too small or not eating enough of the right foods and I have to make them do it. And then we get in this cycle where us trying to make kids eat. And we know many of your readers, we know it's really hard to make kids eat something they don't want to eat, just like pooping and sleeping. And the more we press them, a lot of times the more kids push back. And then we can get into this really downward cycle with kids when we try to kind of, you know, push it and they don't have their choice or feel safe or did at the table. Mm, I'm so glad you brought this up because I hadn't thought about that, but I see those groups as well, right? And of course, if -hmm. something is out of the middle range, we think, do I need a savvy parent might say, do I need to be worried about this? Mm -hmm. So let's set the stage. I do want to talk more about this. Like what can we do instead? But maybe we have some beautiful, specific listener questions today that we can address. But I think if we set the stage and kind of create a foundation, it's going to help answer those later. So Mm -hmm. let me start here. Let's talk about what our goal is. As parents, we're just trying to figure out how to raise kids so they're successful, (laughs) right? We're doing our best. Sometimes we're looking back and realizing, oh gosh. So let's just talk about what do you think is the number one goal in feeding our family? Let's start there. Yeah, well, and I think also we have to define what do we mean by successful, you know, Mm -hmm. and think there's so much pressure now. This just wasn't there when we were kids, right? When we were kids, you went to people's houses and somebody would have bologna or white bread or juice. And, you know, there are nutritional differences between food. And Virginia Soul Smith is an amazing writer. And she just did a workshop for us. She said, foods are nutritionally different, but they should be emotionally equivalent. You know, when we raise our kids, I think that thinking about what success means. And to me, you don't really want a kid who's happy and kind. And so I let all that worry go about sort of optimal brain functioning. And and I mean, obviously that's important, but I think the more we worry about, I have to get this number of mega fatty acids and this much black seed in, and we can get lost in the anxiety around what our goals are in terms of raising kids and what maybe our long-term goals and our short-term goals. So in terms of raising kids, to me, 
and I work a lot with also eating disorder professionals. So I see not only the problems when they're two, three, but when they're 13 and 15 and really struggling and in potentially an eating disorder treatment. So to me, the real goal is I want to raise, I want to help parents raise children who feel good about food and who feel good about their bodies. And, you know, this is Ellen Satter's adult eating idea is called eating competence, right? I want us to raise competent eaters. So that means that they can eat a variety of foods. Generally, the ones they grew up seeing their parents eat is the expectation. So they can enjoy a variety. They eat based on hunger and fullness cues and satisfaction rather than having to rely on, you know, a Fitbit. There's not a lot of psychic, emotional frisson. I don't know. That's a super annoying. I didn't mean to sound snobby, but like, you know, I'm trying to think of the word and like tension or grinding away. I want the opposite of that Yoplait commercial where they're going, can I have dessert? Can I have this? Should I do this? You know, we don't want them to be spending a lot of brain energy, angsty, that's the word, like angsty or worried about food. And we want them as adults to be able to cook and, you know, function well with food. So it's really as much an emotional piece, a feeling of being embodied and that your body is good and it's right, however it is, and kind of being joyful. And the short-term nutrition goals of I have to get to look like my plate or they need to eat this kale or this quinoa or protein or whatever it is, Those sometimes those short-term nutrition goals actually short-circuit that long-term process. Mm-hmm. And not that it's easy, but to me, it's again, examining what our long-term goals are. What I'm hearing you say, I've written down, you know, we want to raise children that feel good about their food and feel good about their bodies. We want to raise competent mm-hmm. eaters. And so I wrote yeah. down participation because I think about how do you translate that, right? And mm-hmm. I think about one of the questions I have from a, a listener was, you know, I feel frustrated. I think so many people can say this. They, they yeah. feel frustrated because they're trying to feed their family and their family doesn't want to eat what they're preparing. And so they're just annoyed that they're literally the quote, I am sick and tired of throwing out produce that goes bad because I alone cannot eat it all. End quote. Mm-hmm. But I also want to be transparent and not just hide things, et cetera. What I hear, and I'd love to hear what you would think, I hear participation because when we're thinking what's a competent mm-hmm. eater, it's someone yeah. that's maybe, I don't know if body aware is a good word, correct me. It's about, mm-hmm. you know, just being interested right? Like, and how do you Mm -hmm. have interest? I mean, I think about, it's funny because I was kind of called a picky eater as a child. And for Mm. some reason, when I started working in restaurants and just eating, I was like, oh, this is so good. I just want to like learn more about food and just, and that's really like, and I think it's so interesting because in the nutrition profession, there's a pretty good split on people that had food relationship issues that go Mm. into the field or, that was not my case. I was just so, I just like love to eat and it was so mm-hmm. interesting to me. And I just love, yeah. I, I want to love all the food. Like, let's talk about, right. cran- let's just go swimming in the bog of cranberries. Like, right, weirdo, right. right. Like, so what is competence, right? What's competence? Is it participation? Yeah. Like, how yeah. do you translate this? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a great question. And I think that your history is really interesting. You didn't branch out when you were necessarily at home where there were maybe expectations, but when you started working in restaurants and when you were curious and when you found that internal motivation, and that's the piece that we can help children tap into. And I think it's really important. And I did just write a paper with Joe Cormack, who's a PhD candidate in England and Giannina Postavaru about this very issue. Like, 
it's called the basic needs theory. And in order to thrive, children need autonomy, they need to feel competent, and they need relationship. And so that's just kind of a general human basic need. But when we apply it to thinking about food, and we want kids to have that internal motivation, we kind of try to put ourselves in the child's point of view. And if you imagine you're at a restaurant, or you're sitting with you know, your own parents at the holiday table, and they're saying to you, why do you only have one Brussels sprout on your plate? They're so good for you. Why don't you try three? And you might say, well, they're not really my favorite, but I'm going to have some sweet potatoes, but you need something green on your plate. Why don't you just take a bite and then swallow it with some wine or whatever you're drinking, you know, and really it's so good for you. And you know, they're cruciferous vegetables and you just have a few bites. Come on, if you have two, then you can have some pecan pie or, you know, so if we, think about putting ourselves in the child's point of view where there's kind of constant attention, discussion, kind of cajoling, nutrition talk, sort of different ways that the adults are trying to get them to eat. It can be really off-putting. And then children can really dig into that no, right, which is also developmentally appropriate. So if we can back off as parents and help them feel competent, and involved. So maybe we have them help us, you know, pull the Brussels sprouts off the stock. That's kind of, Brussels sprouts are so cool. If you can buy them off a stock, you know, and they kind of grow in a spiral pattern and lots of kids, and you can point that out and you can go, wow, look at how cool this is. This grows in a spiral pattern. Can you help me snap them off if you have that? Or maybe they can help you with the plastic lettuce knife, cut the bottom off of the Brussels sprouts. And they can be engaged with the process of cooking and exploring. And then maybe they're passing it at the table. Um, but then that's kind of where we have to stop and be patient. And that's, I think, the hardest part is that we want this to happen, this natural curiosity faster than it does. Mm. The other thing, here's just another little tip since I'm talking about Brussels sprouts, is if you're ever cooking a vegetable, also serve it raw at the table. So cut up a few pieces and put them in a little ramekin or a little paper plate on the middle of the table. So, you know, we were making Brussels sprouts and my daughter grabbed one. She was helping, I don't know, wash them or something. She grabbed one and she started eating it raw. And I was about to say like, oh yeah, we don't eat raw Brussels sprouts. <laughs> and then I bit my tongue, which is a lot of what this is. It's not saying what we want to say. It's just letting the process unfold. And she ate three raw Brussels sprouts. We put some on the table raw. And that night she didn't need any of them cooked. And she's never done it again. She's never eaten raw again. But I think one of the lessons is to kind of step back from our active parenting role and allow and facilitate that process of sort of discovery and the internal curiosity. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you actually touched on a few things. Uh, I know. I, I mean, I, there's happened. so many, I could just ramble on for an hour, but I'm going to stop and let you. Okay. <laughs> let well, you what I hear, okay. I loved, I like put in all caps cajoling, right? We're trying to get our kids. Right. That's what we spend a lot of time doing is cajoling, yes. cajoling, yes. controlling and, and cajoling. Yes. Uh, so and there's talk- research that that makes things worse and mm-hmm. most parents do it. And I did it right. Mm-hmm. Most of us were raised this way. Most of us do it. Most of us feel like being a good parent is getting two more bites of chicken into our child. And there's really, really good research that tells us that even gentle pressure in some studies, like praising and rewarding, giving them a sticker for trying a bite or bribing 
you know, you can have a brownie if you have, or you know, you can have your chocolate nibs or whatever it is if you eat two bites of this. And really good research tells us that that's a huge turnoff for a lot of kids. And it makes them more focused if we're bribing with dessert or sweet or high interest foods. It makes them like those foods more and actually like the foods we want them to eat less. So, you know, it's really frustrating because parents are working really hard and it's kind of like quicksand. Mm -hmm, Totally. So what you just described, which is if you take eat this and you can have this, that's what we're describing. However, this is still a little different or would it be the same as the one bite rule? Or would you suggest, right? Because we want to expose people and and have them be naturally curious. So, and I love the tip about putting raw stuff. I do that at our house as well, because I think it's just better received. Like if I'm cooking Mm -hmm. all these, I'm not going to adapt. I'm not a short order cook. So I'm going to go ahead and cook what I want to eat, but I might cut up an apple and an orange or put carrots and whatever. Like you, it takes no preparation. So sure. And it adds more diversity and gives more interest Absolutely. or gives more, yep. gives more options. And so yeah, you're adding options, mm-hmm, yep. right? Adding options. But right now we're going through a phase and I'm not touching it, but my husband's like, yep, we're just going to put all this food on your plate. <laughs> we're going to put a little bit of everything. And yeah. so what about one bite rolls? How do you feel about that? Yeah. Like, you guys so- got to try this. So this is where I love the word responsive and I really like the research. And so I'm not a fan of universally saying you need a one bite rule or a no thank you bite or a mousy bite or a tasty bite or a tiny bite. I don't universally mend it because I think a lot of kids feel it as pressure. And I think that most kids don't need that. So with the one thank you bite this, but here's the thing. If you have a child who's easygoing, and in the research, they call it high food responsive. So they tend to like new things. They're not super picky. And those are kind of temperament traits too. There was one study where they took toddlers and the high food responsive group, they went and played with new toys and new food. They approached it kind of the same way. They jumped right in. And there was kind of another group of kids that putting together with another study, but of low responsive, and they hung back and they were much more cautious and were waiting a lot longer and they didn't play with the new toys and they didn't jump in with the new foods. And so the reality is, is that kids are different and there are different temperaments and ways of approaching foods. And so If you have a kid where you say, I want you to take a no thank you bite and they try it and sometimes they go, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, I love kohlrabi. That's good. And sometimes they go, "Mm, I don't prefer it, you know, and then they are happy and they're eating other things. Great. Maybe the no thank you bite works for that child who may be sort of high responsive. But if you have a kid and it may even be a sibling, so you might have one that is a fine with a no thank you bite. And then the other one where it's a 45 minute meltdown, right? Where they're crying and sobbing and they eat their no thank you bite like it's broken glass, right? And then they immediately are behaving poorly and they want to leave the table and then they leave. And then 20 minutes, they come back and say, well, now I'm hungry. Can I have my cliff bar or whatever it is? Then that's not working for that child. And so we need to be responsive and recognize that you know, when your pediatrician says, oh, I just use a no thank you bite, you should too. It works great. And all my kids are great eaters. Well, maybe he just kind of got the lottery and has these high food responsive kids who aren't sort of cautious and don't have sensory issues or or allergies or whatever it is. So if it's working for your family, great. But 
I don't generally like that rule. And I don't think it's helpful for most families. Let me just do a quick kohlrabi story. So Mm -hmm. I have a daughter who loves food, loves to eat, but she's very particular. Eats a great variety, but it has to be kind of a certain way. So we had a CSA and when she was about six and this kohlrabi came in the box and my husband and I love it. So we would prepare it because it came every week, right? So this is a great try. And, you know, the last week, and she never wanted it. So we serve everything family style, meaning I don't put it on her plate. And so the first five times, she didn't even put it on her plate. And I didn't say anything. And I didn't push it because, you know, I knew better for us what works. And I had researched all of this. So five weeks of not saying anything while she said, no, thank you, as we passed the kohlrabi around. And then the sixth week, just as I was about to get up to start cleaning up, she slid a piece of the kohlrabi onto her plate. Now, this is, again, this is where you bite your tongue and you don't go, oh, I knew, why don't you try it? Just take a lick. I know you'll like it. It's like the broccoli stems that you like. You know, so I didn't say anything. And she tried it and she looked up and she goes, huh, I love kohlrabi. Like, all right, you know, but that was six weeks of waiting and sitting on my hands and not saying anything. And I know from past experience with her The one time I tried to say, we're all having milk at lunch because she hadn't drank any milk for, you know, nine months. And I said, we're all having milk. She pitched a fit and was like, why can't I have water? Why do I have to have milk? You know, so I knew her and I knew that the pressure would backfire. So patience, the waiting is the hardest part. But I know had I done the one bite rule, she may have choked down kohlrabi, but I don't think she would have discovered a real genuine liking of it if it was imposed on her. Right. Well, you mentioned sensory stuff. So let's talk about some normal responses because as a parent who is going through raising children for the first time, most likely, you may not know what is kind of normal slash not normal. So let's talk about some things you mentioned in your book, like gagging, sensory processing issues with feeding, because I think it tags on to kids being unique. And this is where having a table full of children gets a little challenging, right? And so one of the side note that one of the concerns I might have is when one child says, I don't like this, right? And then you create kind mm-hmm. of a, like a, <laughs> a waterfall oh, yeah. effect with the rest the falling of the Falling dominoes, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think in terms of those protests, the more neutral we can be, how we respond to the protests, and then changing the topic fast is a great thing to do. And that's just right from the start. Would you like sweet potatoes or no thank you? So we're modeling. So I did this with my toddler, you know, well before she could really talk. Would you like sweet potatoes or no thank you? So then the response is no thank you. Or, you know, and if they say yuck, you can say you know, just please say no, thank you. Or don't yuck my yum is another expression. If kids are like, oh, that smells gross. You know, mommy likes it. Don't yuck my yum. I don't yuck your yums. You know, so we just set the stage. There's a lot of work of setting the stage. So when they protest and when they say, I don't like this, you say, that's okay. There's something here everyone can eat. Hey, did you guys play on the swings this morning? Or did you see the quail outside or whatever? So neutral response and then pivot as much as you can when the emotional stuff comes up or the kind of big reactions around food, if we can just be neutral. So sensory is really challenging. I think that there's a wide range of how we react to the world. And I think the sensory stuff also comes on a spectrum. 
you know, my own kiddo couldn't have the seams in the socks and was very temperature dependent and no seams on her clothes. Everything was cotton leggings and t-shirts. So she checked a lot of boxes for sensory processing stuff. And so that's one thing I want to say is I think in some cases we're overly explaining eating. We're kind of hanging our hat on sensory when it's not always a sensory issue. Mm-hmm. So I just want to bring that up a little bit. And even with sensory differences, we can still work on a good relationship with food. But red flags would be, you know, if you have a two-year-old who is still only eating baby food pouches or purees or very soft foods where you can just sort of mash them, you know, with your tongue and the roof of your mouth, you know, soft process tend to be the beige foods that kids often like. So if you're stuck where you're really not seeing a variety in texture, certainly when you introduce solids and there's a lot of gagging and vomiting, so that would be another red flag. And that would be potentially for mouth issues too, like a tongue ties. Yeah. So there are definitely issues if they have never tried of fruit or vegetable, or they avoid entire food groups altogether, that's when you need more information and support. And I wouldn't necessarily go straight to like, we need a feeding clinic eval unless there are the big red flags of the choking and vomiting and gagging. You know, if you're just a little bit concerned, I'm not here to plug my book, but I think the helping your child with extreme picky eating can help unpack, like, do we need to see some a professional at this point or not? And maybe there are things we can tweak around feeding. Because sometimes what looks like, say, an oral aversion is actually from like a feeding battle. So if a 10-month-old, oh, he won't take the spoon anymore, and then we're getting in, I'm getting him in a headlock, and I'm kind of shoving it in. What can look like an oral aversion may be just the kid saying, you know what, this is my body and stop pushing me (laughs) and stop forcing me. And I've had some negative experiences in my mouth that I now want to avoid. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's complicated. Yeah, totally. And I'm going to jump on to this little train here. We have so many questions, but you said we could start with a book. I think that's a great choice because it's comprehensive, right? And so it gives you kind of a big picture of what can go on before you get maybe one-on-one help. But what is the chain of command on getting help in family feeding? So maybe a resource like a book first, and then, you know, you live in this space, but who are some of those professionals in the space that kind of help? And then as a side note, I have seen presentations where I think it's speech therapy, it's feeding therapy, and they basically, it is cajoling. It's like, we're going to, and so we, like, some of the stuff that's out there is not very good. So, (laughs) well, that I would agree. I, you know, and I have my professional bias. So this is another reason why I think the book is really helpful. Again, at this conference we just did, and this is why we did it. It's called Responsive Feeding Therapy. And what we're trying to do is offer something different from a more behavioral approach where there are videos online of children being, you know, strapped down and two adults, you know, forcing them to eat and they do something called, this is, you know, trigger warning, this is hard stuff, but the, you know, the, the kids expel food, they, they swallow it, bring it back up and they scoop it off the tray and hold it in their mouth until they swallow it. And so increasingly there's, this kind of divide in the feeding therapy world. And so, you know, I think the question of where do you go is really tough because there are these two really different approaches to feeding therapy. And one is a more behavioral, which is, you know, you get a reward for eating and you were going to sort of break this. They see crying, gagging, vomiting as behaviors 
to extinguish. Whereas the kind of the other camp sees that as communication. Something's wrong. What is it? Can we figure out what it is? And so it's really, really hard for parents. And I would encourage, in our book, we talk about what are the different kinds of therapies? How do you find a therapist? We have a blog post on how do you find a therapist that may be aligned. So using Alan Satter's work or others in the field, Suzanne Evans-Morris, there's a great group called Thrive by Spectrum on the East Coast that does work with feeding tube. So, you know, I can't get into all of it, but it's complicated. And I think the first place to start is your primary care provider in terms of what's around locally, and then just being armed with some questions and trust your gut as a parent, right? Trust your instincts. You should be in the room when there's therapy. If they say you can't come back with your three-year-old and you hear your three-year-old screaming while you're in the waiting room and they won't let you back there, I don't think that's appropriate. So trust your gut and, you know, remembering that we can support autonomy and our relationship and trust. You know, my co-author Jenny McLaughlin has a program at UT Dallas. So there are folks out there practicing in this responsive way, but I think trust your gut. And if your child, what they're asking you to do has them vomiting more or more anxious or more conflict and power struggles, it's probably not helping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's not a very good standard toolbox. It's kind of there's, what no. training what training has this person done or right. what experience does right. this and how do they yeah. and how and and we're getting familiar with some of this language because you know, really if I saw something that's called responsive feeding therapy, I would say I don't really know what that is. But now no, I know. No, of course that. not. Yeah. No, this is really hard and I think, you know, Virginia Soul Smith who spoke at our conference it was a parent who went through this and she's like, I didn't even know there were different options. I thought you go to feeding therapy and it's always one thing, but there are lots of different approaches for addressing it. And I think finding something that clicks with your parenting and that doesn't sacrifice your relationship with your child. If you are wrestling your kid into the high chair and they're screaming and vomiting through the meal with the protocol that you're doing correctly, it's okay to question that. Mm -hmm. Totally. All right. Let me re-center around some of those questions (laughs) or those pain points that people, that listeners have. So you mentioned a comment earlier called, it was basically about called high interest foods. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what about your child that just wants to eat sweets Mm -hmm. and no vegetables? What are your suggestions for parents around this? So a couple of things, and one is to note that that's very developmentally appropriate, and it's pretty typical. Typical picky eating starts about a year and a half and goes to about six. We also know that children tend to really prefer sweeter foods. It makes sense. They're easier to like to eat. There's some research that suggests, I love this study, as children's growth plates close, their preference for sweetness starts to decrease. So you know, I used to love Fruit Loops. That was like contraband food I could eat on uh, sleepovers. And now I wouldn't even want to eat a bowl of that. And my daughter's now 15 and she used to enjoy orange soda. And recently she said, oh my gosh, this is so sweet. It's giving me a headache. And I was like, oh, it was so mm-hmm. fascinating. I'm like, because she's now 5'10", right? And so she, I think her, hopefully her growth plates are close to being fused. And I thought, wow, this is kind of fun to see you know, this natural progression of something that you liked a couple of years ago that you had on occasion is now too sweet. So I just want to reassure in that this is very normal. There seems to be some biological underpinnings around, you know, kids are growing a lot. Their brains 
work off carbohydrates, you know, brains, it's a huge amount of energy that they need. So I would try to just kind of realize, okay, this is normal. I'm not a bad parent if my child wants sweets. So that's number one. Number two is trying to neutralize your language around candy. Remember that quote, nutritionally different, but emotionally equivalent. So we want to take the emotional energy and the kind of, I need it, you know, I can't have it, so I want it more. I think we can all relate to that feeling out of it. So what I usually recommend is first make sure you're not bribing with dessert. So stop doing that because, again, that makes them want it more. And then two is if there's a preoccupation with sweets, in what I've seen, cold turkey is not the way to do it. You can't physiologically actually be addicted to sugar. It can feel like an addiction, but addiction to sugar is not really a thing when you look at the research. And so, you know, taking a deep breath, not bribing with it anymore, and then actually kind of figuring out how to help the child manage it. So there's a transition period where we're going to serve maybe more than we are comfortable with. So it might be every dinner, if that's where it traditionally happens, you serve a high interest food with the meal. It's not after it. It's not as a reward. It comes along with it. That is like the number two tip around neutralizing the power of sweets is to serve it with the meal. Mm -hmm. So that means, you know, the brownie bite or the homemade cookie or whatever the sweet is for you. It might be a smoothie pop. It might be fruit. Whatever it is goes with the meal, the high interest food. And they will eat it first during the transition and they may not eat a lot of the other stuff. And then eventually what you see is, I mean, I remember doing this so vividly with my daughter, she would lick the popsicle and then go back to some mashed potatoes and then have another lick. And then you get to the point where the popsicle's melting. So you might put it back in the freezer and they can get it when they want to, but it's kind of a transition period where we have to neutralize it. So we bring it into meals and snacks. We stop referring to it as junk or poison or whatever, because that brings in the emotional, the shame, the guilt, which ironically drives the desire for it. Right. It goes back to patience and the patience is the hardest part, maybe? It is absolutely the hardest part. And that's where I encourage, like, if you're struggling with this stuff, don't just sort of jump in with a little bit of knowledge, like read a book, Child of Mine was the Ellen Satter book, my book, talk about how to manage sweets and learn about it before you dive in. Because so many times with clients, they go, well, I heard this podcast or I read your blog and I let them have as much as they wanted, right? That's the other thing about the division of responsibility is at mealtimes, they eat until they're done. And, you know, I let them eat as much as they wanted and she ate more than my husband. And so I stopped and I started restricting her again. So recognizing like this is a leap of faith. So learn as much as you can before you jump in. There's some great Facebook support groups too around eating, parenting picky eaters group. There's different resources I can maybe share with you to put up later, but learn what you can before you jump in, maybe get some online support and then recognize that their eating may get worse before it gets better. And so this happened when I did it. She was quite young, so it only was a couple of weeks. But I call this, you know, you're sitting on your hands, you're white knuckling it. Occasionally, I actually had to leave the table because my anxiety was the issue. I knew the path that I wanted to follow, but it was so hard. So I just walked, said, oh, I'll be right back. And I didn't make the deal. I just walked away, took a couple breaths, (laughs) came back. 
And so recognizing that the transition can be difficult because once we take away our external prompts of trying to get them to eat more or less, they're kind of out there going, what do I do now? And they're going to test us. You know, they're going to push the boundaries and they're going to want that second brownie or they're going to want to eat another piece of bread or the things that may have been our anxiety points. And they're going to see how we react. And so there's testing, there's pushing boundaries. So learn as much as you can kind of before jumping in, because this can be a scary process. Mm, This is a good point. And I wonder if that becomes the answer to a lot of these questions. So you started earlier talking about food preoccupation and then I don't know what we called the one for naturally bigger bodies and then there was mm-hmm. smaller than average bodies. Sure. Do you have any comments for parents feeling this way? What would you tell these two groups of people? What would be some advice? So in terms of weight anxiety, is that the question? I here? guess it's, well, yeah. you called it food preoccupation. These are yep. the two groups that yep. you see a lot of. So, yep. I mean, yeah. I see these concerns as well. I mean, this is where I feel... I don't know what the right answer is. I'm going to defer to you for the right answer. What what advice do you give parents that feel like they need to be food preoccupied here? Just go do more research, like understand it in a much more comprehensive fashion. Look, I was raised in a fat phobic home where everyone was naturally skinny. And if somebody was not skinny, you know, then they were lazy or there was something wrong with them. And then I went to medical school where they sort of cherry pick the research that bigger bodies are inherently unhealthy and it's linearly related, like every quote unquote extra five pounds will like take five years off your life. And it's actually way more complicated than that. But you know what, it took me two and a half years of reading the research to believe because again, I had a kid born, you know, on the off the charts, 100 plus, and I worried, could she be healthy in a bigger body? And so I honestly took me two and a half years of research of reading and learning about some of this stuff. And I actually figured out that, yeah, you know, I can have a kid at the 95th percentile or bigger who is healthy and thriving and active. But the fat phobia and the weight bias in our country is absolutely staggering. You know, and my mom's now nearly 80 and she is quote unquote, you know, five pounds overweight and her doctor wants her to lose weight. And I'm like, dude, you know, you walk an hour and a half a day, you're on no medications, you eat an incredible, varied, you know, basically whole food diet. That's ridiculous advice. So we lose our minds a little bit around this issue, especially in bigger bodies, we seem to be able to be okay with just saying, well, they're genetically smaller. So I think what I would say to parents of kids in bigger bodies is to really focus on what we can control. And the research is clear. When we try to feed kids to get them to weigh less, they end up weighing more and they end up more disordered with their eating and at risk for eating disorders. But this is not an easy message to hear in our culture where most pediatricians are still, you know, ringing the alarm when they hit that arbitrary cutoff. So I would say work on controlling what you can, which is one, I love you unconditionally exactly the way you are right now, you know, your body is good. And then finding ways to support that long term good nutrition with serving a variety of foods without pressure and joyful meal times and having that connection involving them with cooking and different foods, finding physical activity that is fun and sustainable. You know, I would never give a 10 year old a Fitbit, for example, but can we go bike riding? So it's about behaviors and, you know, finding a purpose. These, what we learn is that 
social connection, relationships, purpose, if you have a religion that that faith or volunteering makes more of a difference to health than weight does. And that seems like counterintuitive to everything that we're learning, but the research is pretty clear. So yeah, and and then just reading more. And my book, Love Me, Feed Me, which is for adoptive and fostering families, actually is, I recommend it to most of my clients, whether the child came to them through, you know, birth or adoption, particularly with food preoccupation. And I really outline the research and the studies that convinced me as a parent that I could raise a kid in a bigger body who could be healthy and happy. Yeah. And, you know, I haven't seen, I haven't read or seen that book. I know that you have those great resources on your website around Love Me, Feed Me. And, but you know, it makes sense if you have a child that's older in theory, and you're just about to start this, then it kind of makes sense that you would look at the same thing because you're trying to make a transition from what you've done forever to maybe right. something different. And so I would yeah, imagine yeah. that the principles would remain the same. You know, it's they just like, do. it's almost like, yeah. here, we're going to have a new, new idea. Right, here. right. So, and that's what I love about this though. You can feed your two and seven year old and big or small sensory or not, you can feed them the same way, which is so such a relief. I have clients where they're like, look, my bigger kid, I'm like smacking the ice cream out of her hand. And then I'm shoving it into the five-year-old who's at the fifth percentile. And they keep telling me to fatten her up, you know, and so that's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so I would recommend if you're doing this with anyone who's like, you know, a kid, five, six, nine or older, they're going to know when things are changing. So I do recommend, you know, sitting down, not at the mealtime and saying, you know what, dinner hasn't been a lot of fun for a while. And we're constantly kind of negotiating and fighting over food. And it's not much fun. And our bodies, this is actually true, our bodies don't digest and use food as well when we're stressed out. So we want to have meals, you don't necessarily have to share that detail, but we want mealtimes to be more fun, especially now that we're all trapped with each other all the time and eating meals together all the time. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do things a little bit differently and we don't want to fight at mealtimes anymore. So I think it's you know respectful to have those discussions and we're not going to ask you to eat things you don't want to eat anymore. You have to believe it before you make statements like that though. So, But I do think it's definitely preparing kids who will notice that, wow, why is there an Oreo or why is there this, you know, Fig Newton sitting by my empty plate? That's new. You know, you used to pre-plate everything. So letting them know things are different. And again, focusing on the connection and the joy and not on avoidance and sort of anxiety at mealtimes. Awesome. I feel like that answered the question of what do you want to leave people with today? (laughs) Um, I'll let you add any addendum there. And then also where people can find you. Yeah, I, you know, I don't have much to add. I feel again, I always feel like we just start scratching the surface because I know when I've worked with clients, these are, you know, there's so much here. There's so much to unpack with our own histories around food and our bodies and our anxieties. Maybe some of your listeners themselves have struggled with disordered eating or even eating disorders. And so I think my parting words would be, Be gentle with yourself during this process of learning and unlearning. I certainly have had guilt and anxiety around it. It's not easy. And just, I think just gentleness and kindness and recognizing that these are really hard issues. And a lot of what I've recommended is feels countercultural. And so being ready for that too, of when you don't make your child eat something green at the table, (laughs) 
how to protect them. And I actually wrote a blog about who knows who's with family or not this Thanksgiving. But so yeah, be gentle, kind. This is a process of learning. It's hard. It takes time, but the payoff is worth it. I can't imagine now. I can actually. And that's why I'm so grateful how my life would have been if I hadn't found this work and had continued on the road of trying to, you know, get her to eat less, to have her body be a certain way. Maybe it wasn't intended to be. So, and where you can find me, I'm on Facebook at The Feeding Doctor, Katya Rowell, MD on Instagram. And I think my books are kind of the main place where my work is you know, looking at my old blogs, those are old and, you know, the website's kind of grungy, but thefeedingdoctor.com, there's a lot of great blog content there, extremepickyeating.com, if you're struggling more with that issue. Love it. There are some great resources there. And of course, two great books. So I agree, it does feel like we're just scratching the surface. But I think if we think about big picture, a lot of those questions still kind of boil down to it's not going to be quick, we do have to be patient. And we do need to learn outside of what we learned as kind of children, (laughs) maybe stop us. Sometimes we're still living out the things that we were kind of conditioned as well. So there's maybe a lot of internal work to do. And it's not just what you see on the surface. Thanks so much for joining me today. And I hope we'll have you back. I would love that. Thank you. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to review this podcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's review this podcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.